now, InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. What's the best solution for educators when it comes to handling student violence? Here with the story, InfoTrack's Gina Tedesco. Gina? Thanks, Chris. A study that's now out raises questions about school districts' zero-tolerance policies to combat student violence. Joining us now is the study's lead author, Andrew Perry, a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Educational Studies at The Ohio State University. Mr. Perry, the study asked 4,400 teachers grades pre-K to 12 to rate the effectiveness of ways to address student violence. What were those ways, first off? There were four types of approaches we used in our study. The first was exclusionary discipline, which amounts to zero tolerance, where the offending student is removed from the school or classroom. The second are prevention strategies, which are meant to be proactive in advance of violence occurring, such as socio-emotional learning and counseling. We also had school hardening strategies, which include turning schools more into prisons, truth be told, with metal detectors and with officers, with weapons. And then the fourth type of strategy were crisis intervention strategies, which are physical restraint, separation of students, things that occur in the immediate aftermath of a violent incident. And of those ways, what way of addressing violence did the teachers rate as least effective? The most least effective approach was the exclusionary discipline or zero tolerance strategies. That's the removal of the offending student. And what were, shall we say, side effects resulting from either suspending or kicking students out of school? The pitfall was that the more the participants used exclusionary discipline strategies, the more likely they were to report being victimized. Whereas the more effective they thought the strategies were, there was no relationship, neither good nor bad. There was simply no relationship. So the pitfall is that the more these strategies get used, the more at risk educators are at experiencing violence. And that may be because of the kids' reaction. Are you saying that? That's a possibility. That was not assessed in our study. Our theorizing is that, yes, the student gets removed from the environment, from the classroom or the school, and they come back bitter or upset or angry. That is not within the confines of our data that we didn't analyze that, but that is the hypothesizing that we engaged in. And that might explain then why suspending or expelling a student might be linked to a higher likelihood of violence against teachers? It's very likely, yes. Again, I don't want to overstate the point, given that we didn't analyze that in our study. That's not what our data is. But we suspect that that is the case. Our follow-up work will explore more. So what approaches for dealing with violent student behavior did the teachers rate as best? That would be the prevention strategies, those proactive strategies that occur prior to a violent event occurring. So the other three types, exclusionary discipline and school hardening and crisis intervention, all of them share the same attribute, which is that they are reactionary. They occur after the event has happened. Prevention, again, socio-emotional learning, school counseling, creating a positive learning environment in advance of an event. These educators we surveyed found those to be the most effective. We're visiting with Andrew Perry of The Ohio State University, lead author on a study of teachers' views of what works best to deal with student violence at school. The journal School Psychology published the study. Mr. Perry, let me ask you to drill down just a little bit and give us an example of a prevention technique. 
A prevention technique would look like creating a program or an intervention of sorts in advance of an event occurring. So this is independent of a violent event where we try to craft a community, a sense of community among the classroom, among the students, among the educators, among the administrators, that they're focused on the humanity of these individuals and focusing on learning and mastery of content and minimizing the punitive elements, right? So instead of you know removing students entirely, trying to meet them where they are psychologically and try to foster a sense of not only safety, but also of learning and achievement and focusing more on that. So they, again, these efforts are done in the form of programs, in the form of interventions, all done prior to or independent of a violent occurrence. I've looked into some of the prevention techniques. One involved so-called restorative circles where students sort of process their thoughts with others, take instruction from others as to what is appropriate behavior in schools. But some say this takes instruction time away from those who are not violent and that it's perhaps not fair to the nonviolent students who are taken away from their regular curriculum. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, restorative circles like that, we would classify more those as crisis intervention strategies in that they are tend to be reactive. They tend to occur after there's been a quarrel or a fight or something like that. And the broader point, I would argue, for that or any sort of strategy like this is any time taken that not only addresses the misbehavior, addresses the violent occurrence, but also tries to mitigate it in the future is time well spent. Now, our data points to the benefit of these preventative strategies so that the violent occurrence never happens. For the other strategies, there was real varying rates of effectiveness and how much they get used. But ultimately, I would say broadly, if the school utilizes an effort that shows that it prevents future violence from occurring, I would say it's time well spent. Although specifically restorative circles, we would classify those as crisis intervention rather than prevention. There is one idea that Zoom or distance learning might be best for students who've been violent, just to separate them from other students who are nonviolent. How do you classify that, and do you think it's a workable idea? Well, that's very interesting. That really is not one of the strategies we encompassed within the study. I will say that psychologically, the removal of the student, the separation of the student, the othering of the student is the linchpin behind the thought that they're feeling bitter, resentful, angry. So I think that it is a potential, but the idea still remains that they're not with their classmates, they're not included. And so other strategies that can try to be used to keep them involved, keep them included, but also mitigating violent events, trying to prevent them from happening, trying to understand them, and trying to work with these students so that they and their classmates are both safe and learning, that's crucial. The American Association of Pediatrics reports that preschoolers, preschoolers are suspended or expelled three times as often as elementary school kids. Talk about prevention. Should society focus more resources on this age group, the three to four year olds, to possibly ward off violent behavior later in their lives? Our data would suggest, and other studies we are publishing through the American Psychological Association's task force on the uh, prevention of violence against educators and school personnel, would suggest that yes, 
that this can occur even at these younger ages. I think we all are aware of the event that occurred where an elementary school student drew a weapon and shot their teacher. This can occur in elementary schools. And so the efforts made at younger ages, we would argue that yes, that that could have a benefit. And I want to point out that prevention strategies, they're not meant to scare students. They're not scare tactics. They're meant to promote a positive learning environment. So there should be a multitude of benefits in addition to enhanced safety that these strategies will result in. And doing so earlier on and reaping the benefits in their later years is likely to be a benefit. Again, that's not within the confines of our study and our data, but that is something that is very logical and we would argue is the case. Andrew Perry of The Ohio State University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. For InfoTrack, I'm Gina Tedesco. You're listening to InfoTrack, a production of Syndication Networks.